minutes. It is after 8 p.m. You tune in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. We go into our Thought Leader Thursday segment uh, where we give you the latest, uh, I guess, uh, coming out of uh, one person we like to speak to every Thursday and uh, try and, uh, I guess, make sense of how they view the world and uh, some of the work that they do. Uh, and uh, also, I guess, how they can help us think through some of the seemingly intractable challenges that we face. And certainly today is no different. Joined on the line by uh, Langa Madonko, co-founder and investment principal at Summit Africa. Uh, he's uh, been in the world of investment and financial services for 11 years. And uh, yeah, having worked at JP Morgan and McKinsey previously, and uh, also um, uh, having set up, of course, Summit Africa, uh, which is a specialist alternative investment manager, which uh, provides bespoke investment solutions through their private equity fund and their unlisted social infrastructure fund. Langa Madonko. Uh, is my guest and uh, joins me tonight on the line. Langa, good evening to you, my brother. How are you doing? Uh, good evening. Uh, I'm good. How are you? I'm well, man. I'm well. Uh, great to catch some time with you. Uh, I hope we haven't disturbed your pre-Easter festivities. Good Friday. So uh, I certainly hope that we No, 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 no. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be able to, to connect with you and to be able to chat this evening. Thank you very much, man. So, so Langa, what we normally do in this segment is we try and get an understanding of uh, our thought leader, the person, uh, and then a few areas, I guess, of your work which are of interest to us. We, we try and uh, get uh, a discussion and, uh, you know, sort of get the best from your well of knowledge and wisdom on that score. So just before we get into what I want us to talk about today, which is the financing of infrastructure and the role mm. of, uh, you know, institutional funds and the broader capital markets in getting us, uh, uh, you know, uh, some of that infrastructure funded, Let's talk about Langa first. Uh, who is Langa? Where did you grow up? What were some of the early influences that you think, now in hindsight, uh, probably marked you out for the path that your life has taken? Uh, okay. Um, okay. So basically, Langa is a young man born in Pumalanga. Uh, grew up there. Strong uh, influence from my mother, my grandmother. Uh, and for my dad in terms of uh, foundations. Uh, and I think when I was growing up, it was always uh, emphasized that the key to changing uh, lives would not only be education, but also getting the right set of subjects in terms of uh, focus. Uh, my grandmother wanted me to be a doctor. Uh, maybe one day I'll do a doctorate in English so as to fulfill her dreams. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, then after that, um, uh, studied finance uh, at university and did a second degree in international relations. Uh, and then spent a little bit of time uh, working overseas and then eventually drew the conclusion that home is always best. So ended up uh, calling time on a career overseas and came back to, to SA to see how I could uh, put what I had learned in the world to good use. Uh, making lives better for my own people, if I mm, can put it that way. Mm, mm. And I mean, that journey in the world of um, financial services and in the capital markets, I mean, talk to me about just the early moments. I mean, as society, we have a very different view of people who work in the markets. Uh, and a big part of that, I guess, is driven by popular culture, the films you watch, Wolf of Wall Street, and so on and so forth. Bring us a bit closer, I guess, to what indeed it looked like for you as an early stage professional and I guess how it gave rise later on to uh, Summit Africa. Yeah, so I think um, the, 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 you're right. The movies do overplay the extent to which 
um, the lifestyle is fun, but it's it's mostly long hours, long days. It involves uh, a lot of of thinking. It's it's quite hectic, uh, and I think for me, it was one of those things that, from a foundational perspective, helped me to also understand the potential that existed um, for financial services to play a critical role in changing lives. I think uh, I watched several transactions that were happening and taking place in terms of financing um, yeah, business and financing how uh, things were done and the way people thought about um, the world, especially hinged on the fact that they could determine where capital would go. Um, but also it did in some ways skew uh, my views in terms of the potential that was available. I think um, while I'm here in South Africa and I understand the potential, I think one of the things that we sometimes neglect is the potential of a united Africa because you see the the gains that people are able to make um, in terms of establishing businesses in the U.S. because of the size of the market, mm. China because of the size of the market. India because of the size of the market. And so I came back uh, to South Africa and Africa with the same mentality, thinking that how do we leverage our skill set? How do we leverage our human capital? How do we leverage what is still under leverage, which is the population uh, and demographic dividends that actually exist? And that's been one of the things mm. that has me to where I am now. Yeah. Always for me, Langa, what, what is uh, a bit of a paradox in South Africa is that by any measure, and I mean, you know, the World Economic Forum a few years ago used to put out these measures, so competitiveness measures. And always yeah. South Africa would come out, you know, in pole position, if not number mm. one, number two, number three, in terms of the depth and sophistication of its capital markets, so equity, mm. bond markets. And I, let me maybe add a few other markets there as well, unlisted space, all of that. Now, you also have that happening in the most unequal society. Um, mm. It certainly does go against what the textbooks often tell us, that you know, if you deepen your, uh, you know, uh, and liberalize your financial and capital markets, you're likely, that's likely to translate into growth that can resolve some of the challenges of inclusivity. But South Africa is a typical example that that isn't the case. Talk to me about why you think that is indeed the case, that you've got this very sophisticated financial and capital markets in South Africa, but also very much a third world and uh, very much the most unequal society in the world. Yeah, so I think some of that is historic and some of that is uh, linked to the prevalent culture. So obviously from a historic perspective, uh, capital formation has always been easier in the white communities than it has been for uh, us in the black community. So even if I walk into a bank and I walk in with my white counterpart and we're trying to finance a house, financing the same size of house with the same size of with the same job uh, for the same company, actually, you are more than likely to find that in the first instance, we probably don't get paid the same. So there's ra uh, there's racial so redlining, basically. Yeah, so okay. there's always going to be those, uh, well, hopefully not, but currently exist those racial undertones to how capital is attracted and where capital forms. And then I think the second thing is that the investment thesis that has always been written has been focused on the cultural inequalities that exist. So you've always heard the story that uh, particular types of uh, infrastructure like healthcare, education, 
where you're likely to derive the greatest amount of return is by locating them in where capital already exists in the highest amount. And we've never thought about it from the perspective of economies of scale and how that could potentially also be an avenue for unlocking uh, potential in those spaces. And then the third one, I think, it's also been an an issue of um, the right policy, but not the right implementation. Mm. I literally read the SDGs and then I read the NTP. And you can almost think that the author of the SDGs read the NTP and decided, I'm going to take this to a global standard. So similarly, what BE, triple BE try to achieve in principle is the right thing to take us to where we need to go, but the implementation has not always led to the outcomes that we mm. desired. And, and I think that's what holds us back and yeah. keeps us uh, in such an uh, unequal society. You, you got, I mean, that's something very close to your heart, right? The transformation, not just of the allocative decisions of capital, uh, or capital and financial markets, but also who is there making the decisions. Um, talk to me about the work you guys have done at APSIP uh, insofar as some of the issues you've raised, the racial redlining or profiling, and I guess the difficulty of raising capital for many black entrepreneurs. Yeah, so we, we try to work closely with um, the regulators, and I, I will say uh, upfront that uh, there is a willingness, there is an openness to have discussions. But I think the process of implementation is also rather long. But I think there are three fundamental pillars that need to change in order for our society to start to move towards equality in terms of the allocation of capital. The first one, I think, is that we have to recognize that there is an economic opportunity that exists uh, outside of uh, Sentin, the waterfront, or Umshanga, and that we have economies that are, are able to to procure the services in places that we previously neglected. I think it's kind of unfair that uh, Joburg, Durban, uh, Cape Town and Pretoria account for 60% of the economic activity. When you have places like Vimba District in Zimbabwe having populations of over 1.2 million, uh, and a significant proportion of those people have access to medical aid, have access to uh, employment, whether it be is the fact that they are working within the government space, but it does mean they can consume the services. The second one is also the way that the financial services uh, industry in South Africa has been structured. While it is probably one of the deepest and most properly regulated on the continent, it does lend itself to perpetuating existing cultures on the basis of the principles that we always apply are those of track record, those of, of proven. When we are in a place where we actually need to be exploring the frontier opportunities within our own country. And then last but not least, I think the last one is, I think there seems to always be a disconnect in some instances between, uh, and I say this with all due respect to other financial services providers, between ourselves who actually become custodians of capital and the agenda that we run with. Mm. We forget that it's equally important to pursue a social agenda as it is to pursue a financial agenda sure. once we are the custodians of those of that capital. Talk to me about that because in a way, I mean, if I think about the largest uh, investor on the continent, the PIC, yeah. I know for free that there are nurses, police, women, 
and teachers and other public servants who are members of the GEPF or don't even have a permanent fixed or you know stable roof over their heads mm. and it suggests to me i mean those are the owners of that capital right but in a way they can't even put a, a viable roof over their heads it just suggests that there's in some instances a disconnect and i want to hear you maybe also uh, just with the remaining time we have uh, on how mm. from a policy perspective which you mentioned earlier on things like regulation 28 can get much of that capital that is owned by the police woman the nurse and many others uh, be it in the PIC and outside of it marshaled to build infrastructure close to where people live and that can get people gainfully employed yeah i i think you know um so one of the things that um has been muted from a policy perspective is what uh, is being colloquially referred to as a two bucket system mm. where what is being said is uh, members of pension funds should have an opportunity to access up to 30% of their pension savings now uh, and another 70% on retirement. Um, this principle in of itself, I think, has found a lot of people who have said, no, why are we going in that direction? And the retort that has been given by uh, the, the unions and by the pension fund members, if I can then create my own quote in, in, in that context, is, What's the use of saving for a tomorrow that we won't see? And I think many times the application that we have put towards the pension fund uh, and investments is, has been return-focused. And yet we forget that the greatest return that one can have is before they can have money is the return of security. Mm. And as you have rightfully said, our ability to deliver houses to a, a member or to deliver hospitals in the areas where the members will retire, actually improves, maybe not the financial outcomes, but it definitely improves, first and foremost, the quality of life outcomes, which is why we're actually saving in our pensions to ensure that in our old age, we have a quality of life that matches, and in many instances, is better than what we have now. And so then, however, one of the things that we also don't consider is that if you do give someone a house, and let's say I start working uh, at the age of 30, for example, uh, because uh, unemployment is right uh, mm. below that benchmark, and you give me a bond, and you tell me that, okay, instead of saving uh, 19 20% for my pension fund, a significant proportion of that will go towards uh, servicing the bond. Actually, my net worth on retirement will probably be about 23 to 24% higher because of the tangibility of that asset and my ability to leverage it to raise capital for other things that I might want to venture. I think studies show that in the main, uh, the people who have an adequate replacement ratio from the pension funds are about 6% of the pension community, and the rest will not be able to suffice. But then the same statistics show that 72% of those people, when they retire, they will withdraw that money to settle a bond or they will withdraw a significant proportion of that money to build a property. Mm. And I think we need to be thinking about how we apply investments to solve not only, like I said, financial problems, but the social issues that we have locally. Sure, sure. Langa Matonko? Ah, oh, man, would have loved to touch on so much more. Um, and maybe just briefly, in a minute, talk to me about that social infrastructure fund that uh, you guys are part of there at Summit Africa. I can't let you go without you just plugging that and talking about that briefly. 
No, so based on the same theory that I spoke to you, um, rather the same premise that I spoke to you about, mm. about how populations are growing faster outside of the three main metros, yes. we are focused on delivering healthcare and education in those areas. Because there's a proven study that shows that if you take one child from grade one all the way through to metric, the GDP effect of that is a 0.75% increase. And those are global statistics. And what we are trying to do is make sure we supply the infrastructure, not necessarily for theoretical education, but for education that meets the needs of the employing uh, 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 employers, if I can call it that way. Mm. And then the second thing is, we also saw that there was another study that showed that South Africa was losing about uh, 37 to 40% of its work days because there was in, in, inadequate and insufficient healthcare facilities. Mm. So we thought if we can bring the infrastructure working alongside the healthcare providers, we can increase the levels of productivity and the quality of life of the different members of the society. And that's what we are endeavoring to do in this, our social infrastructure fund. Awesome stuff. Langa Matonko. We're going to be following that one closely. because.